0: We are underway. John, how are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Glenn Lowry here. This is the Glenn Show. GlennLowry.substack.com. And I'm with John McWhorter, my conversation partner with the Black guys uh, at bloggingheads.tv formerly, although we still have a, we still have a presence at bloggingheads.tv. Always. Uh, <laughs> I teach at Brown University. John teaches at Columbia University. And uh, we're back. So welcome, John. How are you doing? Thank you, Glenn.
1: I'm good. I should mention also I've been writing in Substack lately. And um, yeah, it's, it's summer and the news continues, but I am trying to enjoy a certain amount of open-ended
0: time. How are you? I am fine. I am harried. Uh, I am under the gun to get my memoir draft finished by the September date, and I am counting backwards. September 15, there's 15 days into September. There are 31 days in August. There are 31 days in July. That gives me 62 plus 15, which is 77 days if I start counting on July 1st, which is right around the corner. Uh, So I'm drafting and redrafting, and I'm, you know... It, we're, we're out of the time when I used to I used to go sit by the uh, by the pool with my notepad and just let ideas come into my head and just write down little, you know, remarks and sketch and outline and frame. We're way past the framing. We're, we're down to the getting words on the page and getting pages put together and getting chapters completed. And of course, you know this because you write books faster than anybody can read them uh the latest is nine nasty words as i recall but uh the elect or no you've got a new title for woke racism woke racism that's coming right that's coming that's in october that's coming in october yeah so you know what it means to get words down on the page i i struggle i get words out of my mouth spoken very easily but getting them down on the page crafted and sculpted and so on um is, is is really like pulling teeth for me so i'm 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 under the gun. It must be such a drag if that's how it feels. I, really, I
1: mean, just that—that that doesn't sound fun. That's what it feels like. Yeah.
0: Well, it's—I don't know what this is exactly like. The beginning of it is exactly what I'm describing, and it is a drag. It's not fun. Once I actually get going, though, and get a rough get a rough draft and start refining, and ideas start coming to me, and I start revising. And uh, that part is is a little bit more fun, but yeah, it's like pulling teeth for me. Writing is uh, writing is difficult.
1: No, that's um that's hard because I mean these days especially, if you don't talk, you don't exist, and that that just has to be faced. But I think both of us are the kind of people where we feel like if we didn't also write, we wouldn't exist at least to ourselves, and and so there has to be that part. But yeah. Yeah, it's it would be a lot if if it felt like pulling teeth on. I I feel you there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what's going on in the world of race commentary these days? Uh, You got your finger on the pulse of things. You know, there's a piece in Quillette. By
1: um, Hannah, this Aaron Hannah, and I haven't known of him. He's a um, poli sci professor, black poli sci professor. And he does something that I think is long overdue. And we've both read it because we were asked to comment on it. And um, it deserves to be read more widely. It's very critical of our heroes, Shelby Steele and Tom Sowell, but in a very respectful and a very intelligent way. And I think that um, Shelby Steele was my original race writer hero. No offense, Glenn, you came right after him, but... With Shelby, I've often thought the problem is that either you have right-wingers praising him like an angel and not being critical, or you have left-wingers who can't even read a page by him and just dismiss him. I haven't seen him engage that much from the middle where you respect and even admire him, but have some bones to pick. There hasn't been enough of that for Shelby's deal because of the way things are. And it's the same way with Sowell. There are people who think of him as a deity. And then with the left, my impression is that for about the past 30 years, most people on the left barely know he exists. He just doesn't get any traction at all. And then in the middle, forget it. So this piece actually does a nice job of engaging the two of them. And I don't agree with everything in it,
0: but it's a very intelligent piece. And I'm really glad he wrote it. What did you think about it? Well, let me just mention that um, he takes them as emblematic or representative or foundational for Black conservatives. So he he frames the piece as a response to or critical engagement with black conservatives. Um, I was uh, very impressed positively by Aaron Hanna's uh, essay uh, because he seriously engaged uh, from the left uh, with with Steele and uh, with uh, Thomas Sowell. And he is inviting a dialogue. And this is a little bit different from calling people a name or dismissing them out of hand or grandstanding you know, um, or, uh, moral preaching or whatever. He didn't, he didn't do that. Um, and I thought he raised some interesting questions. Uh, and I also admired your, uh, your response that I assume Quillette will print in due course. I responded as well, but I, I just mailed them uh, a speech that I had given recently (laughs) at at Pepperdine, which, you know, I mean, it, it serves to be a statement of where I'm coming from as a, fellow traveler with people like Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: but but I thought it was interesting. Uh, should we spend a little bit of time just reviewing what his critical arguments yeah. are? I mean, yeah. with respect to Steele, what is he saying exactly with respect to Shelby Steele's? Um, well, he he thinks Shelby Steele writes
1: a lot about issues psychological, about the Black psychology and the ordinarily, we should be able to work against obstacles, that we would have the self-love to work our way past what is hurting us, and that instead, we settle for this kind of victimology, for this victim complex, and we seek white people to validate us for it. And he thinks that that psychologically is a disease of sorts. And Aaron Hanna says that the problem with that is that it isn't based on psychological science. And frankly, he's right. I mean, Shelby Steele doesn't delve into the psychological literature any more than I have until recently. And so in a way, he's very intelligently guessing. And there's very much room for that. But it's why some people I've heard who are admirers of Shelby say that he's fundamentally literary. And that's one way of looking at what Hannah sees as unscientific. I get that, that somebody
0: needed to say that, you know, so that's not an improper thing to say about Shelby, is it? No. Um, And as I recall now from the Hannah essay, this is Aaron Hannah in quillette.com. Everybody interested in race issues should read his essay. As I recall, he um, uses the question of free will or the questionable character of the assumption that people have absolutely free will to make choices about how they'll view their lives and how they'll think about their possibilities that are not colored or conditioned by circumstance. Shelby Steele seems to be assuming on Hannah's argument that people have a greater capacity to choose how they look at their circumstances than, in fact, people do. He mm-hmm. even invokes, and I was impressed by this, Immanuel Kant Uh, that argument in the Grundrisse and the Foundation for the Metaphysics of Morals uh, to the effect that, well, of course, people don't have absolutely free will, but a moral theorist needs to make an assumption about psychology. Otherwise, their whole possibility for moral critique collapses. And Hannah seems to be entertaining the possibility that, yes, that's correct, because, in fact, people are psychologically conditioned in ways that make The aspiration that Shelby still holds out for them, not a realistic presumption about what they can actually do. And I thought that needs to be answered. And there's irony here. I'll just finish uh, about uh, Shelby as a armchair psychologist because his twin brother, Claude Hmm. Steele, is in fact a very distinguished academic psychologist. Right. Yeah. So there, there's there's psychology, there's academic psychology in the family, but there's a retort. Now finish. Dostoevsky wasn't a psychologist either. But you, if you know Raskolnikov, if you if you encounter this brother from Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov, this human brother, he's not black, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you are on a journey down into the. You know, the cavernous, you know, uh, underbelly of human psychology and so forth that is illuminating. Mm-hmm. And while, of course, our friend Shelby Steele is no, <laughs> no Fyodor Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's certainly possible for a literary craft to illuminate some of the dark corners of the human soul. And I think that Shelby does that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think he does. And I think what Hannah is getting at, and I really beg his pardon if I'm lumping him in, but, you know, our job is to find patterns. He even almost gives it away in one sense. What he's thinking is that Shelby is not paying enough attention to the issue of agency. It's that the sociologists will say you can't expect agency from people who are downtrodden, where there's so many factors working against this self-realization that Shelby is such a fan of. And I would just say that Hannah is ignoring that it might not only be that the powers that be in ways both concrete and subtle are depriving poor Black people of agency. It might be, especially when we're thinking about the black middle class, where a lot of these same attitudes persist, even though the issue is not having access to resources, that there is the victimhood mindset that I've been trying to get my, my head around over about the past couple months, that psychologists, I imagine even Claude Steele, although I'll bet he would not want to apply it to black people, but there's the victimhood mindset that is a very, in itself, coherent Way of processing life in the world, a coherent kind of individuality that uh, exaggerates victimhood because it lends the benefit of a certain psychological coherence. Because it lends a sense of group membership, it lends a sense of purposefulness. It's a way of being that human individuals fall into, and I am unaware of a principle that would preclude it being extended to a group analysis. That it becomes a a, a something common amidst people of a race because of cultural commonalities as opposed to only individuals. That's there. And I don't know if Hannah knows about that or not. Um, If he didn't, well, that certainly makes sense because I didn't know that this was, quote unquote, a thing academically until about 10 minutes ago. But nevertheless, it backs up a lot of what Shelby writes. Shelby writes about how a lot of Black behavior is based not on pride, but despite the outward manifestations of pride, but on a kind of a racial insecurity. And if that's true, then the victimhood mindset is a natural balm for that. And so that's there. And it would be scientifically consonant with what Shelby writes. And I miss that in what Hannah writes, although the whole issue of bringing in Kant and the whole issue of whether or not people have agency and what people who have thought very deeply about this have thought about this sort of thing is, is brilliant. I mean, this this is the way that you engage Shelby instead of saying, good job, Shelby Steele. We've got to have something other than Al Sharpton that that <laughs> that won't do. Or Shelby Steele's no good because he says black people's problems are their own fault. That's no good either. I'll take Aaron Hanna.
0: Yeah. But the, the conversation continues. And it's a conversation, not a shouting match and not a name calling mm-hmm. fest. It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a serious intellectual engagement. Would that there were more Aaron Hannah's in the world, that is, men and women of the left learned in their own particular fields, prepared to engage with the kind of criticisms that people like you and I, pardon the self-reference, are bringing to the table and to argue about the ideas, uh, you know, as opposed to slogan spouting and name calling and all of that. I I want to say a couple of things. So one is I want to talk about Charles Mary a little bit later in our conversation here. I had him on the show. We had a encounter. He has a book out Facing Reality. Both of us have read the book and so forth. We want to do
1: soul first, right?
0: Yeah. No, I'm I'm not trying to get to Charles Mary right now. I'm trying to make an analogy between the assumption that historical circumstance and oppression and suffering have uh, precluded applying the presumption of free will to the victims of American racism, and the assumption that partially genetically influenced expressions of intellectual ability, as measured by test scores, preclude um, African-Americans from performing in a college classroom or avoiding some social dysfunction like criminal behavior or something like that, the predeterminism element of these arguments. One argument comes from the left. It says history has dealt Blacks a bad hand. We have been oppressed and we have been, been beaten and we abused. What can you expect but that you would see pathological behavior? It's fixed by the historical inheritance. The wealth gap is what it is because we didn't get the hand down from our parents because they didn't get the hand down from their parents. What can we do? The crime rate is what it is, the test scores are what they are, et cetera, fixed by history, predetermined. And the genetic argument, it's in your genes. What can we expect? Do the best you can. We'll respect you as a human being, but we won't expect you to be doing calculus and we won't expect you to be performing at a high level. And and if we see that you're not a good parent or that you break the law frequently or that you're uh, more often involved in violence, while we regret that we can't say that we're surprised because, after all, you're genetic, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those arguments have something in common with one another. And from a spiritual, not religious point of view, from the point of view of thinking the human being, unlike uh, the animal king, the rest of the animal kingdom, we have a spirit, we, we have a will, we have a capacity to make ourselves, we, we can be self critical, we can, notwithstanding the givens, which are our historical inheritance, whether it be genes or some kind of sociopolitical structure, nevertheless will ourselves to be differently in the world than what has been the case. We can be better. And I say that not just for individuals, and this is really the point that uh, the other second point I want to make. I say it for communities, the collectivity. We have a collective conscious uh, consciousness, a kind of uh, cultural orientation, which, which we can influence with our literature, with our politics, with, with our public life. We can teach our children differently. We can hold up ideals. that they, they can be reflected in our journalism, and in our, in our art, and, and in our, in our uh, social life. Uh, there's a better and a worse way of living. We can say to the gangbangers who are killing each other on the streets of Chicago like crazy. Last weekend was a horrible weekend. We can say to them, be better. We mean that you can live differently than what you're living, and, and we can hold that up as an ideal. A good black person would not live like this, would not neglect to take care of their children, would make the best out of their opportunities. Sloth is bad. Self-pity is bad. Live a life of dignity. But if you embrace this predeterminism, whether it be a genetic or a uh, cultural uh, historical predeterminism, you say all the outcomes are already fixed. You make it uh, almost impossible for a community to marshal its moral resources on behalf of teaching its members what it means to live rightly and to live well. It's, it's a demoralization. It's a fundamental demoralization uh, to take these predetermined uh, positions, it seems to me. So
1: Glenn, that was, um, that was too good. That, that was an aria. And I'm annoyed now because thank you because will you please send that to the Times? Will you please (laughs) write that up? Because I'm sitting here thinking I want to write it, but then I'd be stealing it from you. You
0: do it. That should be inviting. I hate to say that, but. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate the feedback. And yes, uh, fortunately here at the Glenn show, we have a team. The team includes Nikita Petrov who sits in St. Petersburg. He's a Russian brother. He's an absolutely splendid creative director at The Glenn Show. And Mark Sussman, who is an English teach, uh, lecturer at, uh, at City University of New York and is, uh, helps to edit the newsletter. And they, they craft, you know, the clips that we put up on Twitter and Facebook to try to advertise The, the Glenn Show. Get a transcript and, and of that. And we can certainly get a transcript of that. Aria, oh man, thank you. I mean it. Okay. <laughs> that
1: was an audience <laughs> you should know th- this is not staged. That was all spontaneous. But yeah, that was that was good. I mean, now I don't want to talk about anything else. But well, especially let's... because you just took us to Murray, really, and it kind of I don't want to
0: go there quite yet. I want to stay with Hannah for a minute because I want to I want to segue to this thing about what was in The Times this morning from uh, Janae Desmond Harris mm-hmm. about what kind of black people should you listen to? Should you listen to Shelby Steele and Thomas Sowell or should you listen to Ibram X. Kendi and, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones or should you listen to Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter? Who are the real black people engaged in the conversation? I think the conversation is the thing and to preclude certain parts of the conversation like the aria that I just offered uh, would be (laughs) such a pity. And yet people seem quite ready to do that. And so I wanted to try to draw you out a little bit. Can you share with us what uh, is in the times this morning and what the relevance of that is?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know much about Janae Desmond Harris. I know that um, (laughs) I wrote in passing in a longish piece five or six years ago That um, one thing that's held down black scholastic performance is that black teens often call you white if you're black and you like school, which is a fact proven both by many studies, including ones that think that they're not proving it. And also just brute basic experience of anybody who's been black since 1966. And I don't know if it's still going on now over the past decade or so but certainly late 20th century, you could not grow up black and miss it unless you didn't know any black people. And I wrote about it in passing. I've written about it at length before, but just in passing. And Janae Desmond Harris wrote a whole piece where she called me out as not being qualified to um, write about that issue or have an opinion because I'm a linguist and that doesn't lend me the training to have anything to say about social issues. She, I I genuinely don't remember whether she's trained in sociology or social work, but, or maybe education, but I think it was one of the first two. And she does have the training to know and she, you know, has her sense of what the studies say. And so her point was that this was in Vox and Vox wouldn't allow me to reply, which I didn't like. And yes, I do have a memory, but (laughs) that is what she thought about me. Now, she's thought about all sorts of things other than me, but I do remember that point. And so in the Times this morning, she has a piece where somebody asks her, and I imagine it's somebody white, somebody asks her, who are the Black thinkers who we should listen to? We're often told that we should listen to a range, that Black thought is not monolithic. And what the writer means is that all Black people don't think like Janae Desmond Harris, who has a range of views about race issues that are well-intentioned, but are very focused on calling out racism and would surprise few. I don't even need to describe. But this writer is asking, who beyond Black people like you would you recommend? And her point in her piece is essentially that the Black people you should listen to are the ones like her, and she carefully dismisses without using too many names, most other Black thinkers who are not like her. And the idea being that either they are what she calls anti-Black scolds, who are you know, making a buck from white people by saying things that white people want to hear. In other words, Uncle Tom, that term is now about as archaic as Honky, but she means there are Uncle Toms. And she says, you know, we all know that there are. And then also, there are these people who are stepping outside of their fields. And so I guess that means that if you don't have a degree in African-American studies, political science, sociology, or anthropology, or maybe economics, if you're this linguist and what you know about is you know, adverbs, then you're not supposed to comment because you don't have the scholarly chops to have anything interesting to say. And I see where she's coming from. And she doesn't mention me. The opening writer mentions me. She does not attack me personally, and I'm not attacking her personally. But that is a view that you hear often. And my simple retort, the Uncle Tom bit, I'm not even going to bother. That's I'm not going to say anything to, to George Jefferson. But <laughs> the part about that someone like me is stepping outside of my lane, there's a very simple answer. If I were a linguist who read what she considers to be the right people and tossed my hat into the ring in favor of them, nobody would say, who cares what this person thinks about the people with three names and their views, even if he likes them? He's just a linguist. Why should we listen to his counsel? Why why should we listen to him rephrase the things that they say? If I praised all of those people and I had a way with the words, but you know, my job was I was a toll a toll booth collector. That's what I did, but I'm also good at, you know, saying that people like Tanahashi Coates are saying the right thing. Nobody would say, but what he does is he collects tolls. Why should we listen to him? Nobody would say, but what he is is a geographer. Why should we listen to him? It would never come up. That only comes up if you take issue. I find that utterly incoherent and Utterly dismissible, absolutely dismissible. So that is my
0: answer to that. Where would you go with a piece like that? Uh, This business of uh, stepping outside of your field. So what's the relevant field for race commentary? Um, I I should have thought that it would not be one thing. It's certainly not just Afro-American studies. Um, I I got this impression from a recent piece by Ibram X. Kendi in the Atlantic, where he was responding to critics of uh, of critical race theory. And he uh, it's a long piece. I don't know if you've uh, if if you read it. Maybe I shouldn't even ask you, John. Maybe that's an embarrassing question. I read it. He begins with his Ph.D. studies at Temple University in a restaurant that he used to like to go to uh, to get a good uh, good meal Uh, And uh, he talks about writing his dissertation and about the courses that he took and so forth and the expert in Afro-American studies and whatnot. And I I almost want to say that, you know, focusing on Afro-American studies doesn't necessarily make you any more uh, expert at the critical engagement with the questions that are relevant to blacks, like criminology or economics or sociology or history of politics i mean that it's it's a it's 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 a field to be sure in the sense that you can major in it but it it's not uh, a field in the sense of uh I mean, it's not the only field. (laughs) I got to be careful about how I put this. Not the only field that's relevant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, someone who's a nuclear physicist who decides that he's going to comment on medical uh, issues is one thing. But someone who's an economist, a sociologist or a linguist, for that matter, who wants to comment about race, I think is perfectly uh, well suited to do so. Um, I'm reminded I was reminded uh, in your description of Janae Desmond Harris's piece in the New York Times today of the comment infamously made by uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley at some forum where she uh, points out that uh, if you're going to be speaking about race issues as a Black person, we want you to be giving voice to the authentic views and aspirations of Black people. Don't be coming up here as a Black face, but giving voice to a white narrative. Uh, And of course, you know me well enough to know what I think about that. That's, that's just complete bunk. That's, that's playing with words. That's, that's a kind of anti-intellectual uh, tyranny really that you're going to. It's critical race theory. Know, I don't
1: know if she was thinking. Okay. Yeah,
0: and, and it's this kind of identity, you know, it's identity politics on steroids. It's now, you know, the quality of argument depends upon the color of the skin of the person who's making it, the, uh, legitimacy of 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 the expression of certain views or values is conditioned on whether or not you're an insider or an outsider to this or that ethnic uh, category. Uh, yeah, it is. It is uh, re- reminiscent of some of the least uh, impressive, and most troubling aspects of the critical race theory movement.
1: Yeah, you know, it's. It all comes down to one thing. All of all of the rub, where everything start to seem like they don't make sense, comes down to one thing. And I, I wish people like this could see out of the box, but they're like fish that don't know they're wet. They will never see that they're in a box. It's not their fault. I understand the attractions of the box. Fiddle with some dials and switches and I'd be in the box. But it's a box, which is that what they think engagement with race issues is supposed to be, is showing that Black people's problems aren't our fault. They think that the main meal is to show that if it looks like there's something wrong with us, it's because of the operations of racism, either overt, subtle, or societal. It's not our fault. A 100 years ago, the same people's idea was our job is to get rid of the concrete barriers and then show that we can do what anybody else does. Nobody would have questioned this, including people like Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois and the, the, the radical ones that people like to elevate today. All of them would have agreed with that. Today, you're minted in this idea that the main job is to show it's not our fault. That is the fulcrum of so many of these careers. And the problem is that they are so much less interested in showing, look what we can do despite the fact that racism exists. It's at the point where I think most of them can't imagine that anybody could. And then there's the inconvenient cognitive dissonance of what Black people did 100 years ago despite. But then you have the inconvenience that think about Tulsa for one minute, but then what you're really expected to think about is what was done to the Tulsa district. And so that's that's the problem. They don't realize how disempowering this is, that there is at the very least a question as to whether the kind of racism they're talking about is the conclusive obstacle that we're told. And more to the point, none of them would say, we're not interested in progress, we're not interested in showing that people can do better. But the thing is, they're not. There's always that disjunction between what people will say, what people will attest to, and how they really feel. For these people, the main point is to show it's not our fault. And so if you say anything except it's not our fault, you're the devil. I get it. I can imagine thinking that way. I think it's our jobs as you know to, to be actors in a way. That's where something like Janae Desmond Harris's piece comes from. That's where Ayana Presley is coming from. But I don't think they're right. I don't think that history will judge this as a useful era in Black thought. That that dead set commitment to showing white people it's not our fault. Because the truth is, suppose it isn't. But then next is, what are you going to do about it? And if the answer is, you must turn society absolutely upside down. Well, you know, folks, that's not going to happen. And so what about a Black academia committed to showing what we can do? But no. And I've, I've noticed in the past, if you try to bring that up, it's as if you blew on a tuba in church. <laughs> and so that's that's the issue. So I get where Janae Desmond Harris and Ayanna Presley are coming from. I don't bristle when I hear them, but it is they don't know it. But these are very blinkered views that don't help black people as much as they seem to think. That's the point. It's not just that I don't like hearing it because I don't like being in the down position, although I don't. But it's, it doesn't help anybody. Nevertheless, there they are. But that is what I think about the article in The Times this morning. And I should say, folks, she doesn't come out and name me. I'm not defending myself against a personal attack. But I think that that piece is an attack on a lot of black people who are trying to make a difference and have good intentions. And for us to just be called Uncle Toms and or people who need to stick to our lane and therefore not say anything about the race issues that matter to people. I don't I don't go for it. I think that's, at best, one opinion out of many that's valid. But, but Glenn, Glenn, Tom Sowell, real quick, yeah. rednecks. Tom Sowell's idea, which Hannah doesn't like, is that black violence, and if one wants to say that there's a black disinclination to work among poor black people, if that's true, that it comes from redneck white culture that southern black people were minted in, and that this comes in turn from certain kinds of violence-prone, hyper-masculinized, for example, Scottish Highland culture. And that that's why things like Chicago murders among Black boys for no real reason in the summer are happening. That this comes from the rednecks. And I found in general that many of Tom Sowell's fans just love that book that where he outlines this and they just figure what black people are doing is imitating. It comes from this redneck culture. Give us the title people. of
0: the book. I, I forget it.
1: Um, Black rednecks and white something. Um, yeah. It's one of his more read books. Yeah. I, I read it too long ago to be able to quote it chapter and verse, but it's this idea that it's not that there's something wrong with black people themselves, but that black people are still imitating this, Hillbilly, redneck, Hatfields and McCoys culture in circumstances such as modern cities where that kind of behavior is counterproductive. And Hannah thinks that that's ridiculous. Um, I've never heard anybody take it on before. Anybody I've ever heard talk about it says, "Oh yeah, that must be the, the issue."
0: And um, okay, so this is Scotch Irish culture. This is the South in the early part of the nineteenth century, and this is uh, hyper masculinity. This is a proclivity to violence, a vendetta uh, kind of uh, uh, phenom- exactly. social phenomenon that goes on. Now, this this observation is familiar to me from long before Thomas Sowell wrote that book. Uh, there was a book by a man called Fox Butterfield, a journalist writing uh, for The New York Times for a while, called All of God's Children. And it's it's about I can't remember the gentleman's name now. It starts with a particular African-American criminal who committed a heinous or a series of heinous uh, murders in New York City, but who had come from a county in South Carolina, that's where he, he grew up. And Butterfield, I'm Bobbit, or not, it's probably not Bobbit. Babbitt. Anyway, the name of the criminal in question. Um, and Butterfield starts with his case and sort of walks backward and goes back to this county in South Carolina where this gentleman came from and finds that his father and his grandfather and his great grandfather were also, you know, problematic with respect to their violent behavior and whatnot. And finds that Hatfield-McCoy type of feuds would uh, break out not only between black but also between white families. Finds, in fact, that the congressman who caned another member of Congress to within an inch of his life in a in the uh, pre-Civil War. Sumner, yeah. Yeah, right. run up Justin to the- Brooks and, right, yeah. Somebody got beaten half to death on the floor of the uh, United States Congress. Brooks on uh, Sumner. Right. In 1860 or 1859 or something like that. Uh, but the gentleman who did the caning came from exactly this district in South Carolina, from which the family of the murderer that Fox Butterfield is focusing on, and all of God's children had come. In any case, what he does in the book is argue that this cultural tick, if we want to call it a tick or or problem, uh, was common as between whites and blacks who emerged out of this uh, hill country in South Carolina uh, and migrated to the cities on the Eastern seaboard and into the Midwest. And so there is more in common than you might expect across the racial lines on these issues. It's not just black culture. I can remember this argument and the book was a bestseller and, you know, got a lot of attention when it was published 35 years ago or whatever. That's Mm -hmm. the kind of thing that soul is talking about. Mm -hmm. Now it's one thing anecdotally to take a case and to, you know, trace it and, and identify it. It's another thing to say that the exchange of, uh, of uh, revenge type killings, such as what are playing themselves out between gang members in Chicago in the year 2021 is a present day manifestation of this very same cultural trend. Because a lot of stuff is intervened between uh, blacks in the 19th century and the nature of social life on the on the streets of uh, a big city in 2021, like the war on drugs, uh, like uh, the welfare state. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of stuff is intervening. OK, I suppose I should say Jim Crow segregation and uh, job inequality and poverty and deindustrialization. OK, a lot of stuff is intervening. So with so many moving parts, uh, it, one doesn't necessarily view with confidence the attribution of causal uh, significance that uh, Soul is making to this particular feature of American culture. It's not without interest to note that there is some influence. Jim Webb, the uh, former US Senator James Webb from West Virginia, also oh, from Virginia, not from West Virginia.
1: Uh, Just from also. Virginia. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, al- also, uh, he has a, a, a book where uh, he is um, calling attention to the cultural specificity of the Scotch-Irish uh, uh, origins of many of the uh, residents of uh, Appalachia uh, through the various states where the Appalachian mountain chain runs, uh, where you have some of these same cultural features. And um, Hillbilly Elegy guy, uh, what's his name? J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance also touches on, on this kind of thing. So I wouldn't write it off altogether, but I, I, I wouldn't take it as being the be all and end all of, of explanation in this regard. I've always found that um, the only argument
1: of Tom's that I'm not blown away by, you know, for the same reasons as you're mentioning, I think of you know Italians, Puerto Ricans, same culture when poverty is involved. I don't find it especially a, a black thing or especially a black or a Scots Irish thing. I've never found the the arguments never fully rung the bell for me, especially because a lot of what Tom is referring to, I'm not sure anybody would have said that about Black people in general in 1925. Maybe there's the laziness that people would mention. You can get a little bit of that in Du Bois when he mentioned some Black people of a certain stratum, you know, are lazy. But the idea that There's this unique propensity for illegitimate childbirth and utterly gratuitous violence and raucous music, as as he puts it. I don't know, maybe the raucous music, because that's what people thought of ragtime and then jazz as being, but I don't know if you would have said it then. A lot of it, to me, seems very post-mid 1960s, and there's so many factors involved. But on the other hand, Hannah seems to just dismiss the whole idea out of a sense that A culture corresponds to present day circumstances and that, therefore, because circumstances have changed, how could black people today be acting like, quote, unquote, hillbillies in 1825? And I think that kind of takes it too far because there is an extent to which cultures have DNA in the analogy is by no means perfect, but it's not irrelevant. And cultures can sometimes do things that make no sense in a current context. What makes a culture discard something completely, if it does, is if it's uncomfortable, if it's burdensome. Often the thing isn't particularly burdensome, especially in the present tense. And so, of course, a propensity to violence and vendettas, et cetera, is gonna have some some down-pulling effects on the culture. But in terms of how you feel day-to-day, you could say that men feel validated and masculinized by that that to the extent that there is a biological difference between men and women and i you know stand on that that if boys will be boys that is one way that a culture will give an outlet to that sort of thing and so yeah it makes perfect sense to me that there might be something in black culture today that is inherited from things that happened amidst contact between the races 200 years ago. I see no reason that that could not be the case because you see in cultures around the world that you're looking at how everything makes sense. And the good anthropologist wants everything to tie to what the river is like, what the market economy is like, what the white people down the river have been doing to them for the past 25 years. And all of that makes sense, except for about 10 percent where you're wondering, why do they do that? Why do they wear those clothes? Why do they spread that on themselves? Why every week do they go down to the river and talk to those people in that weird, strange kind of language and nobody knows what half of the words mean? Why do they do that? So so much of those, those things is now chance. Or you find out that the reason they do that is because of, in 1750, they did this. And now nobody remembers not doing it. And it's just kind of what we do because that's what we do. I don't know what name anthropologists or sociologists have for that, but it's very real. And here's me in my field, trying to contribute. In linguistics, all of this is easy. Any language has fossilizations of that kind. You have to expect it. Part of the reason I'm so sensitive to it is because culture to me is like language. And I figure, okay, they're doing that. Just like in English, we say children and we say geese and we say oxen. Nobody knows why. I can tell you why, because all of that used to be very systematic. Who cares today? We just carry it along because it doesn't really hurt. And nobody really thinks about it. The analogy is only roughly imperfect. Culture has that. And so I think Tom is not crazy to think that that might be the way it is, where I think Hannah thinks that everything, you know, all
0: culture is about the modern state of the GNP. I think that's not true. Okay, let let me make a couple of observations. We're talking about culture, race and inequality. One, it has to do with slavery, a reason why I wouldn't follow Tom, soul, all together in attributing the problematic aspects of contemporary Black culture to this inheritance from the Scotch-Irish Southern uh, origins. Because slavery was a very profound institutional uh, imposition that could be expected to have consequences for Blacks that it wouldn't have had for whites, all of whom might have been a part of the same Southern regional uh, subculture. Uh, Orlando Patterson elaborates that uh, his concept of natal alienation, which calls attention to the way in which intergenerational social connection amongst the slaves was uh, interfered with by the property right assertion of the master. He could sell off the children from a family. He could take sexual favors with the mother of the et cetera, Uh, could uh, have. Uh, must have had, argues Patterson, deep implications for the way in which Black family life evolved after slavery. And he claims Patterson does that. He can find evidence in Afro-diasporic communities throughout the world, the Caribbean, the uh, 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 UK uh, immigrant, uh, Black uh, populations, etc., where you see common cultural features that he thinks are at least in part due to slavery. So that that would be one thing to say. But the other thing to say here, I think I have to at least try to give voice to it, is that there's some people who think this whole claim that there are actually cultural differences of any significance by race in the United States is wrong. Sandy Darity, William Darity, uh, Duke University uh, economist, a colleague of mine from graduate school days at MIT back in the 1970s, has a whole essay where he goes after Orlando Patterson and William Julius Wilson. He would have gone after Glenn Lowry if he thought I was worth talking about, but he doesn't. But that's OK. I'm, I'm OK with that. Uh, and he says, look, they're just wrong. He says, for example, you called attention to the acting white phenomenon. He denies that it exists. He says it's bullshit. He says blacks, by his evidence, uh, uh, evidence a greater uh, investment in uh, education and evaluation for their children. Why not says any claim about laziness and, you know, not willingness to work is simply wrong. And then he has his arguments about why that's the case. Any claim about a, a, a proclivity to violence is simply wrong. Any claim that family structure differences by race in terms of out of like birth rates or multiple partner paternity or anything like this have any implications for child development that helps to explain racial inequality is simply false. He's, the evidence is not there he Says people are making it up. So uh, I think he's wrong. I think the evidence, both the commonsensical evidence and the systematic social scientific evidence is there. But uh, then, you know, you're going to have a fight about study X and study Y uh, the acting white phenomenon, study X and study Y. Some people find what they're looking for Uh, I really think the weight of the evidence is uh, very powerfully in favor of the existence of a depressive effect on black engagement with academic materials based upon a uh, association of that engagement with racial inauthenticity. I think the evidence is there painfully clear. But William A. Darity and uh, his uh, his ilk uh, would deny it uh, to the last to the last day. Mm -hmm. So those are two comments. One of them says the soul may be getting it wrong because he underestimates the unique influence of slavery on culture. The other says the soul may be getting it wrong because he's attributing whatever cultural differences he thinks he sees to something that's all a phantom, that's all shadow boxing because there really are no cultural differences. Everything is driven by uh, wealth uh, inheritance, economic opportunity, uh, racism, and discrimination. It's interesting. Very quick sidebar. Um,
1: Darity, Tyson, and Castellino, 2004, 2005 is about the acting white hypothesis. And it was a paper that got around at a time when papers started getting around more easily because of blogs. And that paper in particular, argued against there being a unique acting white issue among black kids in particular, and convinced a lot of good, good thinking people that the acting white idea is um, a myth. And it's interesting, if you actually read the paper, and papers like that are hard to read, they get into numbers, very few people are going to get through the whole thing. I I get it. And the numbers beyond a certain point, often stymie me because I'm, I'm out of my lane. You know, I don't know, I don't have the math. But in this paper, it was very clear. It's interesting, the conclusions that they actually made. They showed that There isn't this identification of scholarly achievement with school, with school, with white people in low performing all black schools. Instead, where you find it is in schools where black kids are going to school alongside white kids. Now, big surprise. Of course, that's where these issues of identity would come in. But their idea seems to be that because you don't find it in all black schools, it doesn't matter. So, they show that it's happening exactly where, at the same time, it was being documented in documentaries and in testimonials and in journalism. It's exactly where Black kids go to school with white kids, where there are white kids to model themselves against if this phenomenon is going to express itself. Isn't that what you would expect? Now, it's a nice, it's an interesting nuance to know that it doesn't happen in the ghetto, as they used to say. And it's intuitive to me. Yeah, there are no white people around. But when the white kids are around, then teenagers' natural clannishness is gonna kick in. And unfortunately, with black kids, one thing that gets dragged along in the DNA these days is that sense that it's them who do the schoolwork. And yet for D'Ardy, Tyson, and Castellino, that didn't matter. It was as if they were thinking the default condition of blackness is to be a ghetto kid going to a ghetto school. And I guess the idea was that the black kids going to school with white kids were such a rarity that it's, it's 1914 that it doesn't matter what's going on in those schools. I thought that was a really lazy reading of that paper. And I was surprised that the authors intended it
0: to be read that way. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Uh, By the way, Fryer, who has his own papers on acting white, finds something similar. He looks at the relationship between popularity and grades, and he finds that having higher grades doesn't necessarily make you more popular when you're Black uh, in schools that are integrated, but he doesn't find that in the schools that are, are mostly Black schools. Um, and uh, Darity and company have been dismissive of Fryer's findings, even though Fryer confirms in a way the point that they're making in that paper. But you're making, I'm putting your finger on the point, which is that you wouldn't expect to see the acting white phenomenon be significant in all Black schools. You would need the presence of whites as a reference for which the acting white enforcers could point to. You see, you want to be like those people. And if there aren't any of those people around, that's not going to be so easy to do. Um, so but th- th- I think there's an issue of fault here. I think what they're trying to do is they say there's nothing wrong with Black people. Black people are OK. Left to our own devices, we wouldn't be doing this. So this is a reaction in one way or another to white racism. Mm-hmm. You don't find white racism in all black schools and you don't find black people expressing this behavior in all black schools because mm. this behavior is not an intrinsic aspect of blackness. Blackness is OK. The only time you get patho- pathological, quote uh, unquote, uh, pathological outcomes is when you put black people in the presence of white people and the forces of racism can assert themselves. And that's a that's then, a statement of faith as much as anything. And then you get an yeah.
1: There, it should be an acronym. You know, it's not our fault. It's the INAF thing. But then you get into, is it true that the reason the Black kids feel that way in those schools is because of racism? Is it because the white kids don't like them? Is it because white teachers don't like them? Or is it because of racism from white teachers and students in the 1960s amidst desegregation efforts where the racism was real. And then a new meme sets in that school is for other people, which then gets carried along in the cultural DNA, which is precisely what happened as Stuart Buck, who I don't know much about, showed in a wonderful book from about 20 years ago that nobody read. And so you can have your cake and eat it too. The reason that Black kids do that is because of racism. It started that way. But then you get into this theme of ours lately, the complexity of social history, which is that as the decades passed, that meme set in and it kept going because teenage kids like to be tribal, And one of the elements that Black kids can use is the idea that if you're a grind, then you're not one of us. There's nothing pathological about it. But that's what happened, despite the fact that the overt racism from the students and the teachers receded. And, you know, I come from, you know, 1978, 1984. I know what subtle racism from the white kids was like. Little things people would say, but they weren't that little, the occasional teacher who clearly had it out for you for no reason other than that you were black. Not that they were going to cane you, you weren't going to be suspended. You know, I was a nerd, but still you could detect biases. That's now 40 years ago. And by 20 years ago things had massively changed and by today even more, but the meme persists because that's human. It's not about being black, it's it's human. Other groups have other memes. And there's not enough room for that kind of analysis of these sorts of things. And I imagine that Sandy, well, I can't call him Sandy because he doesn't like me. William Darity would not want to hear this. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I know he'd have a response and it wouldn't just be to swat us with a bear paw. But this this won't do for him. And, you know, there it goes. i <laughs> see I'm trying to set another meme. I don't think it's going to catch on. But it's, it's not that. our fault. It's not our fault. Wait, I'm doing
0: it. It's the wrong letter for one thing. So it's i know. Yeah, it's, it's i know so. or i know. <laughs> yeah, i know. I know. Anyway. Anyway, so we were going to talk about Charles Mary. Do you want to maybe save that for the Q&A? Cuz we have a queue. Well, well, what time? See, I'm okay. vague so uh, I'm well, not wearing okay. my glasses. No, I don't know if we want to hide that discussion. Okay, so then let's oh. talk about your reading of Facing Reality. In my reading of Facing Reality, I had Charles Murray on the Glenn Show last week uh, discussing his book, his new book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America, in which he explores the data on racial differences in test scores and racial differences in participation in violent crime, and he talks about the significance of these realities, these truths that people don't wanna face for the viability of the American project. Uh, and he's, he's very concerned about that our unwillingness to face these truths uh, might endanger the, the American project going forward. So he, he's sounding an alarm and offering a bracing uh, confrontation uh, with the reality of our racial condition. Uh, I had him on the show um, I had him on because I think it's an important book and I think it's actually pretty well done. Uh, and I think there's insight in the argument. And I think Charles Murray is not a white supremacist racist, but is a person who thinks IQ is an important part of social life and thinks there are racial differences in IQ that are relevant to racial differences and social outcomes. I don't have to. And it's also pessimistic about social interventions that are intended to reduce the disparities amongst individuals, regardless of race and in intelligence. He thinks there's a significant hardwired component to intelligence. One doesn't have to agree with him about that to be willing to engage with him. And I am, have been willing to engage with him. I've gotten criticism for that, but that's neither here nor there. You read the same book. It came to a different conclusion.
1: Well, I should say first that I don't have that anti-Marie animus that we're supposed to have. And we've discussed that before. And I'm not going to take up time defending it. He's, he's brilliant. And I do know him. Yes. However, honestly, this to me was his weakest book. And it comes down to this. You know how most books are too long, including a lot of mine? This book is too short because he starts out with all of this depressing data. And you know, as far as these intelligence tests, you've got black, Latino, Asian, and white. And it comes out in the same order, which I'm not even gonna specify again and again and again. Decade after decade, not just one IQ test, but many kinds, various tests for various professions. It's always the same fucking order. And you can have questions about each test. You can have questions about whether there's a such thing as G, but I'm sorry. The fact that those tests always come out in the same order, all these disparate people, it's always the same thing. To say that that means nothing is to be a denialist. It means that you just can't deal with a certain discomfort. And, If people hear me saying that and they want to jump all over me and say that I'm chiming in, that black people are less bright, have a field day. Go to town. I read the book. I saw the data. And it's always that same order. And I was very depressed reading it. And what I have to say about it is this. All of a sudden, after chapter five, it goes off a cliff because he just doesn't say enough. He says three things. One is that we've got to stop affirmative action because, well, Black people aren't bright enough to benefit from any more, you know, any more special training, et cetera. It's just going to be the way it is. And if you bring in less qualified people, particularly in various bureaucratic and service industries, then you're doing the country a bad turn because those people have lower IQs and they don't do as good a job. And that's not good for the fabric of the nation. Now, Is that true? And he says affirmative action is particularly prevalent in fulfilling these bureaucratic and government jobs. I don't know that. Maybe it's true. But suddenly, no footnotes. You know, these exhaustive footnotes for all the stuff about the test. But all of a sudden here, he just says it like he's at a cocktail party. Not enough. You know, I'd like to see the proof. And then his second point is that um, there's possibly going to be this insurrection that A certain segment of white people are tired of being told that they have privilege and tired of making way for people who clearly aren't as qualified as them, and they're tired of being called racist, and we better watch out because it's going to blow. Now, I understand why somebody might think that, especially after January 6th, less before it, but is it true that we really are on the verge of, you know, that, that woman who runs the liquor store in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania that I'm always making up? Are people like that really about to blow? I don't know. And so he just tosses it out. Like it's just like he's writing an editorial every week and he's just you know saying a little something. And then finally, there's his point. And I've seen this with other people who have been looking at the intelligence data where he says that we must judge people as individuals, that we should accept that Black people are gonna be on the bottom of that scale. But for any individual Black person, we cannot let that color how intelligent, how capable we suppose them of being, we should just watch them as an individual, because, of course, there are black superstars just like they're white dummies. I find that weak. I don't see that happening among human beings in a first world society with the prelude that we've already had. I suppose if you blew it all up and started again. OK. But his analogy to being in a jungle and trying to keep a garden cleared, no, it would always be a jungle when it comes to that. The idea that we're going to accept, yeah, Black people aren't as bright. However, if you meet a Black person, assume that their IQ could be anywhere from zero to 200. No, I find it weak. Or if somebody's going to make that argument, and I know that the people who make that argument are making it with a smile. It's not a condescending smile. I think they really mean it. I take them on faith. But it would take more than two and a half pages to make me fully able to even pretend to get on board with this. And Murray doesn't provide the argument. So notice, I'm not saying anything about racism here. I just find it to be a weakly argued book, once he gets past the data, about Black stupidity and Black violence. The violence I find uninteresting. There, As we've just discussed, there are many reasons why this violence might be the case. But the IQ part is genuinely interesting. and. Um, he didn't go far enough. I would need that book to be at least a third longer than it is before I could think of it as on a par with his other deeply disturbing work, but where he makes a case. There's human accomplishment. There's even coming apart. And then there's this. The first five chapters are, oh God, this is one of the saddest books I've ever read. What am I going to do with this? I seek this brilliant mind to give me counsel. And then chapter six and seven are just afterthoughts. I was disappointed.
0: So you're not disputing the the facts that he assembles in the uh, assessment of racial differences in intelligence or of racial differences in let's violence. put it this way.
1: There is some problem that black people have with tests. <laughs> that is perfectly clear. Now you can. There are arguments we can make that it's cultural somehow, but something's going on with black people and tests.
0: So I'm taking that as a yes. That is, you're not disputing the report reportage of the facts. You can't. And with respect to violence, where he assembles data across U.S. cities that report these data by race on the frequency of people's participation in homicide, rape, assault and robbery. And he finds seven to one, eight to one, ten to one relative uh, participation rates between black and white. You're not disputing that, but you think it's uninteresting.
1: You could predict that sort of thing based on the 1960s, both the cultural shifts and the change in welfare legislation that helped break up families and then the war on drugs. All of that would leave me wondering why young black men would not indulge in more violence than white men in Scarsdale. So you're talking
0: you're talking about explanation. You're saying you find a ready explanation for it. You're not surprised by it.
1: Yeah, it's not. Now, a gene.
0: He, he doesn't talk about explanation at all in this book. He doesn't try to Mm-mm. account for the differences. He says that's another book. He says, my point here is to call your attention, to chronicle and call your attention to these differences. You're not disputing the differences that he's calling our attention to. Your, your complaint is about what he wants who, to say. Who could, in life. unless he's an
1: absolute charlatan, who could dispute the basic facts that he lays out. So now with
0: respect to violence, he's saying, so there's a whole national uh, political crisis that's been precipitated here in the last decade or so. uh, From uh, Trayvon Martin through Michael Brown, through Eric Gardner and so on to uh, um, George Floyd and so on, Uh, cities have been set ablaze. Uh, you know, there's, there's a galvanizing kind of uh, mobilization uh, along racial lines, which is uh, about uh, police uh, violence against Blacks. And he's saying, this is Mary, I'm, I'm inviting your reaction. I mean, I'm defending Mary now to this, to this extent. He's saying, first of all, let's just look at the facts. They're pretty astonishing. Okay, there's a big difference in the race, across the races in participation in violent crime in American cities, just a fact. And then he says, are are police officers supposed to be oblivious to this fact? Uh, Are residents who decide where to live, where to send their children to school, whether or not to open up a business, whether or not to drive this avenue or that, not supposed to know about this? Are voters supposed to be oblivious to this? So now we have a national rhetoric about race and policing, which has the bad guys being rogue police officers who don't give a damn about the integrity of Black bodies and who are perpetrating genocide, open season on Black people, et cetera. And a, a juxtaposition that we have a reality about carjacking, robbery, rape, murder, and assault in American cities that is highly racialized with Blacks being vastly overrepresented amongst the offenders. It, are we in touch with reality when we discuss race, crime and punishment, largely in terms of white police officers killing black people? Everybody can read the newspaper. Everybody in suburban St. Louis, Baltimore, Philadelphia, et cetera, can read the newspaper. So. So, uh, OK, I, I don't want to go on too long in this vein. I'm simply trying to identify w- where it is that you're finding there to be a problem. How can it be uninteresting that there's such racial differences in violent crime, given that we are, in fact, uh, you know, on the verge of open uh, uh, almost civil war? I mean, almost a kind of, you know, uh, deep uh, 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 fissures uh, in, in the body. Power. What is critical race theory teaching these kids? I mean, we can find the cases, can't we? If you're white, You're likely to grow up to be a police officer and then you'll be a murderer is is what uh, that's my, you know, paraphrase of what some of this stuff is, you know, uh, telling it. Stand the kids on either side of the room. The black kid over here who's likely to be a victim of police violence. The white kid over here who's likely to be a perpetrator of police violence and, and all that kind of stuff against the actual reality of criminal violence on the streets of American cities. He's saying that there's a disconnect. And likewise, with respect to the test scores. You say it's old hat. They always come out the same order. The Asians do better than the whites. The whites do better than the Latinos. The Latinos do better than the blacks on the average. Uh, You say he's always the same thing. Well, maybe that's the reality. It's not an uninteresting reality, is it? Uh, You say he hasn't. And I agree with you. He hasn't demonstrated. Okay, so let me not talk too long here. First of all, I want to defend the project of assembling the facts. I think that's worthwhile. Secondly, I want to say that the facts are significant, even if Mary doesn't entirely put his finger on why those facts are significant. The facts about violent crime are politically salient. The facts about differences in test scores matter. Um, and he says, but look, there's no, there's no moral blood on my hands for pointing out these facts. Because after all, we don't have to view individuals differently just because groups are different at the average. And you say, and I think you're right, really? You, you don't think there's any real social weight, real political and moral responsibility that falls on the person who announces certain facts when they are so explosive uh, and, and, and so you know, disruptive of our, of our domestic tranquility? Not just that there are white supremacists who will take the facts that you report and use them as ammunition for their pernicious arguments, Not just that there are Black people who will be injured uh, in in their sense of of, of their their own worth and uh, value, uh, or of how they perceive themselves of being perceived and valued by others, by the facts that you report. Uh, Don't you have a responsibility if you report facts like this to, and I'm not sure what you want him to do, uh, uh, at least own up to the fact that you're uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater. Maybe you ought to whisper and not shout, Um, anyway, can you respond to some of that? Yeah, you're bringing me out on it.
1: I've talked to people who are like-minded to him. What they're really saying is that we need to face that as we move on, Black people are going to be uncommon in areas such as astrophysics, in jobs that require the very highest form of cognitive achievement that we need to just face that black people are going to be more likely to be basketball players and entertainers and low level civic servants than in the smart stuff that's what i think charles murray means and i can wrap my head around someone saying that and it not meaning that he hates black people for a great many people will say that if you believe that you're a racist, no, get out of your belly, use your head. What he's saying is that these are the numbers. This is the genetic reality. And we need to face that. There's nothing to be done about it. It's not about societal racism. It's not about that. The tests are biased. It's just that that's the way it is. So let's think about a society where we just accept this kind of hierarchy, which is really tough for us, given our democratic endowment, given the way we think the world is supposed to be because this is America. But he's saying, maybe we need to think a new way. That is not inevitably, inherently biased against Black people because that would imply that somehow he's wrong, that there's some other approach that would change things and that you can make as conclusive an argument that that approach would work, as he has made a conclusive argument that there are these differences, which is the most depressing thing I've ever seen. And so instead of just saying that, because he's human and he lives in a society and he's been through what he went through after the bell curve anyway, I fully get this, I think he sugarcoats it with this argument that we should view all people as individuals. It's not that he doesn't believe that, but he knows how counterintuitive that would be. And I think what he really is saying is that the reality is something that's deeply unsavory but that we cannot escape without having a race war, apparently. But I think even if we weren't going to have a race war, what he wants us to just accept is that there is this cognitive hierarchy and that a more graceful society would be to just accept it. That is a very nervy argument. In a way, I respect him for having the balls to even halfway make it. But it's a really tough one to swallow, even for me. We have ideals. That's part of Our liberal society, that's part of being intelligent people in the modern Western world. And to accept that Black people are going to be where they were roughly, where we were roughly in about 1950, that that's about as good as we can expect to get because all the rest of it is affirmative action that puts undeserving people in places they don't belong. Wow. That's very far sighted, very depressing. And I'm not sure if it's useful thought, major head-stretching argument. I'm not calling him a racist, but if he's going to make that argument, I need a good three or four thick chapters. I need some reasoning. And he didn't see fit to provide it. <laughs> and I was okay. just disappointed.
0: But good. And and I, I think it's important data that you read Charles Mary in the way that you do, given what we know about your uh, general uh, outlook. You're certainly not Uh, doing it in a reflexive, uh, he's a white supremacist. I'm going to throw a a pie in his face Mm -hmm. way. Uh, You're saying he has responsibilities that he hasn't owned up to, even if we credit that the factual information that he reports to us is more or less accurate, Uh, that he's casual and in a way sloppy and maybe even irresponsible and that he thinks he's got cover with this various uh, book story about, ah, Look, uh, we can still view people without regard to race, even if we acknowledge that there are racial differences on the average and you don't think that works. I want to note, um, and I guess this is in his defense, a couple of distinctions. One of them is that populations are one thing, individuals are another. Now, that's just true. Okay, so uh, the fact that populations descended from ancestors who uh, evolved in separation from one another over long periods of time, some in Northeast Asia, some in Southern Africa, some in Europe, some in the the uh, Americas, the uh, Indo American population, whatnot. Uh, that that it's not implausible that those populations could, on the average, have different distributions of traits from just the processes of evolution. That that certainly could be true. Those differences may or may not be significant. And their population differences. So we've got two bell curves. The bell curves overlap. An individual is an individual. A population is a population. Those are not the same thing. That an individual is drawn from a population about which, on average, the test score is lower doesn't imply that that individual's test score is lower. That's just a fact. Uh, it might imply that if I knew nothing else other than what population he came from, I'd estimate his test score to be lower. But all I need to do is interact with that particular individual for the population information to become irrelevant to the idiosyncratic information that I'll have about that specific person. So, you know, I think certain defenses can be offered here. I think, though, that it's one thing to say if I have an astrophysics Ph.D. program and I've got more Jews than their number in the population and fewer blacks and more Asians, that that might be due to the fact that these bell curves have different means And we're way out in the right tail here. And all I need is a little bit of difference at the mean. They have a pretty big difference in the relative number of people at the right tail. And so I'm going to have Jews who test better and Asians who test better than whites, other whites, uh, more frequently represented in the right tail. And if I try to force an outcome on the astrophysics program that is diversity and inclusion, I'm just making trouble for myself if I don't recognize that there are these population differences, which are especially pronounced in the right tail. Now, that's the kind of thing that would get you fired if you're the president of Harvard University, (laughs) because that's pretty much all that Lawrence Summers said about men and women in the science and mathematics was that the tails were thicker on one side or the other. And, you know, we are way out in the tail. So don't expect parity. That's all he said. And he ended up getting canned for that. But it is also statistically a valid statement to make. And if you insist on population proportionality, uh, you're going to get mediocrity amongst the people in the population that doesn't do so well on the average, because some of those people are just not going to be as good as the best of the people in the other groups that that you are admitting. I know that's a hard thing to say, but I think it's something that one has to take seriously Uh, when you're operating in uh, in the right tail. Uh, And moreover, I would say, and I'll stop, if I insist on population proportionality, then I am implicitly devaluing the achievements of people in the groups that happen to do better for whatever the reasons are. I mean, too many Jews in finance, too many Asians in the engineering school, that's, that's where we're headed when we parse out by group and we assume that it's inequity that accounts for the fact that groups are differently represented. And Mary wants us to take on board the fact that groups have different distributions of traits. And when you're getting into the rarefied area of human achievement, to expect group equality of presence is, as a test of the equity of the system uh, is simply a mistake.
1: That's a really, really hard book to write. And it's a very, very sensitive issue. And maybe it takes somebody else to be able to read him without throwing the book across the room, but to work out what an alternative approach to that data might be. And maybe some of it has to do with explaining, what is it? about people of African descent and this thing called the standardized test. There's no doubt that there's, a, there's an issue. What is it? And it's not that the tests are biased. Murray completely burns down that argument. And we've always known that wasn't it, not since about 1975. But what is it about that kind of test that throws the African-descended person? And does it have to be, G? might it be something else as in my gut? I think it is, as I've written in an article that appeared in the National Review because nobody else would touch it. I feel like it's cultural, but my feelings here don't matter. The facts are plain about how African-descended people do on them. I just think we need more than what Murray said.
0: Let, let me play.
1: Funny thing, there's no way to convene a colloquium about it because you couldn't get a representative range of people to read the book without throwing up, but... They're interesting places I think it could be taken.
0: No, I was just going to point out, I mean, while he's parsing these data on test scores, he observes that from the early 1960s or is it the late 1960s through the mid-1990s, there was a secular decline in the gap between black and white average test scores on these mental ability tests Mm -hmm. from maybe a little bit more than 1.0 standard deviations down to like 0.85 standard deviations at the mean kind of difference. And then the convergence stopped. Well, that's evidence that the disparity, at least all of the disparity, couldn't possibly be baked into the genetic inheritance exactly. since there was this secular trend of closing uh, the gap, which stopped. And it invites our attention to, well, why did it stop and what other factors might be going on? So a complete genetic determinism argument is inconsistent with the data that Murray himself
1: Exactly. Presented.
0: The other thing yeah. that I'd say is... and. It, This is disturbing, and I'm a little bit mad at myself that I didn't make more of a point of this when I interviewed him. It's one thing to say you can't do uh, a PhD program in astrophysics unless you have a very high uh, aptitude for quantitative reasoning, and those things are not distributed equally between populations. It's another thing to say that the robbery rate is higher in uh, Chicago or St. Louis uh, for Blacks than it is for whites, and and, and and therefore what? That's also supposed to be genetic. That's about their intelligence or about the way their their glandular system work or whatever. Where's your evidence for that? Much more plausible is that that has a cultural slash political slash social slash economic foundation. than he's too uh, smart
1: not to know that. I'm sure he knows
0: to think that it's only their It's only their genes. Now, in the book, he does not say it's their genes. He says, I'm agnostic about where these differences come from. I just want you to take on board the fact that there are these differences. But Mm -hmm. if you throw those facts on the table, you know, everybody is going to be going to the next step and speculating about where it comes from. So your agnosticism is really dodging your responsibility to take on board the consequences of what it is that you're shouting with a megaphone.
1: The book is too short. Yeah, the book is
0: ominously short. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, we've done Mary and we've done a full almost 90 minutes of The Glenn Show with John McWhorter, my favorite guest. And so we're going to call it to a close. uh, And I'm going to thank John for uh, his stimulating contribution.
1: Thank you, Glenn. This was a (laughs) this was a rich one. Glad we did it.